Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am the priest. I'm Carl Stevens. And I am the rabbi, Daniel Bogard. And it's just the two of us today, and I have been fighting and losing to a horrible cold, but I I think I'm slowly on the mend, so you will you will hear me sounding quite phlegmy and scratchy, but such is life. Uh, you, I'm sure we're all looking forward to it. Yes, yes. And you, of course, are in the pink of health, aren't you, Daniel? Hey, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Other than my four-year-old girls waking us up about three times last night, oh. we're... Uh, wow. We're good to go here. Okay. Uh, so we are leaping into Exodus chapter 9. We are still in the world of plagues. I am uh, not using my regular Robert Alter translation because that's in the car and it's raining outside. So I am using the NRSV today. What are you What are you using? Oh, I, I think you totally should have come up with a better explanation than that. You know, the... the, the uh, some sort of academic reason why you're using the new one. I, I think you could pull it off here. Uh, uh, okay, you you say what you're using, and I'll come up with the reason. <laughs> um, yes, yes. Uh, so I am using Safaria, S-E-F-A-R-I-A dot org. And, and my reason, as will become clear, is that I believe in the end times. Uh, Robert Alter will be proved defunct, and uh, NRSVP will be proved to be the definitive translation. Yes, the angels on high will call it out. Robert they, Alter was wrong. They, they will indeed. They'll trumpet it. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, without, that was good. That was a much better reading. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Sure. Uh, without further ado, let's leap in. Should I start reading, Daniel, or do you want to? Please. Chapter 9. Okay. Chapter- with your brand new uh, um, Glory from Heaven translation. Here we go. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go so that they may worship me, for they refused to let them go and still hold them. The hand of the Lord was strike with a deadly pestilence, your livestock in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing shall die of all that belongs to the Israelite. Okay, so we are right back into our plagues here. We sure are. And uh, I guess my understanding, although I don't see it written here yet, is that the livestock of Israel is safe because they're all in the land of Goshen, but the land, uh, the livestock of the of the Egypt is not safe because it's in Egypt proper. Um, yes, there's this sort of bubble city of Goshen that protects uh, the Israelites. Yeah, this uh, what would like a weird little province or something. Um, and I'm I'm wondering where it is on the map, so I'm uh, going to look it up quick. Just uh, consult Rabbi Google here. Yes, I'm looking Bible Bible map. Uh, for all of you who wonder how we, how we managed to do such a wonderful, uh, high scholarship here, this is how. Okay, so Goshen appears to be, uh, really not that far from, from Egypt Central. It's a little to the east. It's a little close to the Sinai Peninsula. Um, a little south of Pithom and Ramsey. Uh, but but not not a far flung province. It's you know it's not the the far west or anything of of ancient Egypt. The home of the slaves. It is a, the home of the, the slaves. Of, oh, give so, me. A you home. know, going back to verse one. Uh-huh. Uh huh. 
we've got this line again. Let my people go that they may worship me. Right. Uh, what can they not do in Goshen that they want to do out in the wilderness? That's you make a really good point. It really does feel like the wilderness is just a ruse, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, though interestingly, right, this is not a line that Moses is delivering to Pharaoh. This is the line that God is delivering to Moses. Yeah. Oh, though he is saying, go to Pharaoh and say to this. Okay, so maybe we're just dealing with propaganda. God is saying this is the way to convince Pharaoh. Maybe, although ultimately I think the wilderness will become important. So maybe the Pharaoh is not convinced by it. But uh, in both uh, Jewish history, at least in terms of the Pentateuch, and certainly in Christian history, the wilderness has prime importance as the place where you go to meet the divine, to wrestle with angels and combat devils. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, where am I going with all this? So I, I think the wilderness should not be just seen as a ruse, but as a, there's a real spiritual truth there that we enter into wildernesses uh, where everything is stripped away. And it's when things are stripped away from our normal life and culture that we can actually meet God. Nice. Nice. Okay, shall we keep going? Sure. Uh, that, I would also say, is eisegesis reading into the text because all the thoughts about the wilderness are nowhere actually here in Exodus, uh, at least in this part. So, <laughs> There's a, a, a Jewish tradition called pardes, that there are four levels that you can read a text, but the first two levels are pshat, which means sort of the, the actual meaning of the text, the surface level, the, the, the literal meaning. And then you have the drash, the interpretive uh, version. This is where we get the word midrash from. It's also uh, oh. today when you give a sermon, it's often called a drash or a drasha. Huh. Um, but there's a great saying that uh, the difference between pshat and drash is what I'm saying is pshat and what you're saying is drash. Oh, right. Okay. Because <laughs> right. By definition, mine is the correct read and yours is a great homily. Oh, wow. Really? That's, uh, that's quite a bird. <laughs> a rabbi uh, bird. So it doesn't matter where you, uh, where you're standing on this. It's always, you know, your own read. That's the correct one. And everyone else is a nice homily. Okay. <laughs> when rabbis get together for a rap battle, this is what they come out with. Ex- that's exactly the idea. <laughs> and what are the that's two, exactly the, the, the two remaining levels? Uh, so they're much more spiritual uh, ideas. And actually, uh, uh, when we get to chapter 10, we're going to look at some uh, uh, Jewish mystical texts that sort of emerge from those levels. Oh, that's super exciting. That's where I want to go. Screw, screw the shot of the drosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we've all sat through enough sermons in our life. Yeah, exactly. All right. Anyway. Okay, going on. Uh, so these livestock... Um, I, I I don't know if there's anything to be made of the fact that the type of livestock are are singled out here, um, except I, I just kind of enjoy it. So actually, I'll tell you the piece that stands out to me here to uh, return to a more serious place is that we're making a distinction between the livestock. And we, we've had the same phrasing before that, that a distinction was made between the Israelites and uh, between the Egyptians. Uh, last week we looked at this. And I think there is such a relationship between experiences of oppression and the formation of collective identity. And I think that's what we're seeing here, right? That, that this separation, this sense of a fundamental difference between the two groups 
is very much a response to the experience of oppression. Hmm. Um, right. The separation doesn't happen until that. Right. Uh, well, okay. Expound. So the Egyptians are oppressing the Israelites and that, which naturally makes the Israelites want to be as far away from the Egyptians as possible. So let, let me give three examples okay. of what I'm thinking of here. Uh, the first, uh, biblical, we go into the land of Egypt as, uh, literally the children of Jacob, but much more so we go into the land of Egypt as tribes, as separate tribes. Mm-hmm. And how much these tribes really felt like one people, I'm not sure that that's so clear. Uh, It is this experience of oppression that lines everyone up into a much more important uh, identity other than the tribal identity. And that is instead the sort of new national identity that's created through the experience of oppression uh, in Egypt. So that's my example number one. Example number two, I think, is... Uh, look at the slave trade in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. These people who are being ripped from their lives and ripped from their homes and uh, brought to the United States to serve as slaves, they come from an incredibly diverse collection of cultures and societies and civilizations with radically different religious traditions and linguistic traditions and so on and so forth. And yet the experience of slavery creates this new identity based in oppression mm-hmm. yeah, uh, that we find in the United States. And then the final example I'll give is uh, the experience of Zionism and Israel and the creation of Palestinian identity. That when we look back, it's not, it's not so clear that there was a sense of Palestinian identity a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's the experience of oppression that emerges uh after, in particular, you're talking about the sort of refugees from uh, 1948 and then, of course, 1967, that creates this new national identity, uh, this separation. Well, that makes me quite sad, really, um, because one could wish that it would be a different way, right? So I, I don't know if I've talked previously on this podcast about the Robbers Cave study. Um, are you familiar with that? Does that ring a bell? No, nothing at all. Okay. Well, it was this famous sociological study that was done a long time ago, 50s or 60s or something. And they took uh, two, diff- they, two different groups of boys and put them in camps across the lake from each other. Um, and it was, it was a study in how groups become cohesive. And what they discovered was that the groups became cohesive through co- competition with each other. So one group, you know, started to pride itself on being honest and upstanding while the other group was sneaky. And while that group owned that it was sneaky and prided itself on that and saw the other group as priggish and dumb. And I mean, I'm vastly simplifying and not doing the study any credit at all. But it got so violent and troublesome that it actually had to be ended early. And, you know, ever since reading about it, I've kind of despaired of human nature. It makes me very sad that we can't conceive of any better way to come together as communities beyond uh, defining what we're not. My, uh, my Rebbe, my teacher of a blessed memory, David Hartman, uh, has a famous essay called Auschwitz or Sinai, uh, where he looks at these as sort of being two poles of Jewish identity. Uh-huh. And... 
he talks about just how seductive it is to base your identity around crisis and around oppression and in particular about not being the other hmm. and how effective it is. It right. works for creating identity uh, and just how much harder it is to build your identity around Sinai, around a shared image of an aspirational future. Right. Um, right. I mean, I wonder if that's what's happening in America today at some level is we don't have an agreed upon geopolitical foil. Yeah. It binds us in common. And so what we're seeing maybe is that without that mythology, do we have enough of an aspirational myth together as a people, as an American people, uh, well, to we, keep us thinking of ourselves as being a people? We used to, but it's an, an interesting idea to think that maybe what happened is uh, we stopped paying attention to our Sinai, which was the idea of being the democratic light to the nations, right? And uh, became obsessed with our uh, with our Auschwitz, which was the Soviet Union. And once that went away, we we no longer know how to rearticulate the Sinai. So I, you know, I love that as an idea, but I'm not sure I buy it uh, when I think about history. I mean, right? Think back to uh, World War II when we literally had Nazis as our foil. Right. Uh, and we had the Germans before that. Uh, and prior to that, we're still really dealing with the reverberations of the Civil War. Maybe, but I, well, I think there was once uh, an idea of America as, well, I don't, I don't want to get too far into it. The basic problem is that it's when one thinks of what our Sinai might have been, uh, I find myself having to admit that it led to probably some very unfortunate things, right? So like Manifest Destiny was really an expression of our Sinai in some ways. We weren't, we weren't pitting ourselves against other groups of people. We were saying we have a vision of what we should be and we are going to do anything we can to reach that vision. Uh, and it just happened that many of the things we did were quite evil. <laughs> so and yet we always had the foil of the Indian. Yeah, I suppose. Right? So, but there was always this common enemy that our civilization was fighting. Yeah, I um, guess, I guess I just always thought that we treated them as if they were just in the way rather than, they were an actual threat that we need to mm. destroy, mm. but maybe I'm wrong in that. Anyway, it, it, I love that. I wonder if you could send that essay along because I would like to read it and think more. About I will that. do that. And we could probably put a link up uh, on, the, on website the website too for yeah. any listeners who'd like to find it. Or if you just Google Sinai, Auschwitz, David Hartman. Uh, anyway, should we move on? Uh, so verse five, is that right? And Adonai has fixed the time tomorrow. Adonai will do this thing in the land. And Adonai did so the next day. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but of the livestock of the Israelites, not a single beast died. When Pharaoh inquired, he found that not a head of the livestock of Israel had died, and yet Pharaoh remained stubborn, and he would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Each of you take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. 
It shall become a fine dust all over the land of Egypt and cause an inflammation, breaking out in boils on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. So they took the suit of the kiln and appeared before Pharaoh. Moses threw it towards the sky and it caused an inflammation, breaking out in boils on man and beasts. The magicians were unable to confront Moses because of the inflammation, for the inflammation afflicted the magicians as well as all the other Egyptians. Huh. But the Lord stiffened the heart of Pharaoh, and he would not heed them, just as the Lord had told Moses. All right, so there are a bunch of things there. I want to talk about uh, the kiln and whether it matters. I want to just spend a minute paying attention to the fact that the magicians disappeared for a little while and now they're peeking their heads back up. Yes, welcome back, magicians. <laughs> and then I want to talk about that hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But uh, let's start with the kiln. Is there is there any significance to it being the suit of a kiln? Uh, you know, so I found another translation that said just the ashes from an oven, too. Uh-huh. Uh, so a kiln is like a pottery thing, is that correct? Uh, so I think you can read this, uh, either way there. Uh, but certainly it's this sort of magical image of throwing the dust in the air and spreading everywhere. Right. Um, well, I'm just, I'm just asking because a kiln is a place of creation. It's a place the where remnants of creation causing pain. Exactly. Exactly. Or creation misused causing mm. pain. Uh, which brings us back to this idea that the plagues are in some ways an undoing of creation. Uh, and of course, uh, if Adam is formed from the dust, uh, then here is the, the unforming of Adam in a way, isn't it? Mm. Hmm. Hmm. I like that. Just as, as the plague on the livestock, I suppose, is an undoing of the creation of the animals. Um, Anyway, I think I think that kiln. I think one can make a good. Uh, what is, what is the second level of reading? The rosh, the drosh. Yes, drosh. exactly. I, I think I one could make Great a good drosh. drosh out of that one. <laughs> yeah. Great drosh. Um, I'm filing that away. Okay, and then why do the magicians disappear and then pop back in? So there is a uh, tradition because we're getting to this idea of the hardening of the heart. Right. And of course, this is the very first time uh, we're going to be told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, it is not Pharaoh doing it to himself. It's God doing it to him. And there's this tradition uh, that says that actually what would happen is Pharaoh would be ready to let the people go. And the magicians, his advisors, all of a sudden their hearts would be hardened and they would lose empathy and they would say no. Or if the magicians were ready to let the people go, that was the moment when Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. And it's sort of a, a reflection on the role of our social situation uh, and how it impacts our ability to feel empathy. Hmm. That's really interesting. Okay, so he's being egged on by his court or he's um, egging his court on <laughs> in yes. one way or another. Uh so Pharaoh is not just an individual, really. Pharaoh is a, a collective of opinions, which makes sense to me. Uh, okay, so maybe the magicians just peek back in, but then what does that have to do with God coming in to harden Pharaoh's heart? Yeah, so we've got this Midrash from Midrash Rabbah uh, that points out that the first five times uh, we have the plagues, uh, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and this is the first time that uh, God hardens his heart. What the Midrash says is that uh, 
when God saw that Pharaoh didn't relent after these first five, God said, even if Pharaoh now wishes to repent, I shall harden his heart in order to exact full punishment from him. It's not a midrash that leaves me feeling comfortable. Uh, so the question I had when I was going over this is, was, what is the role in not just winning the battle, but winning it in a way that future histories will tell it inspirationally? Yeah. Well, right? it brings it brings me back to that Passover uh reading or or idea that um it was a midrash from a couple of weeks back. Uh but the idea that God led the people out in such a way that Egypt was so broken that it could no longer harm them or never harm them again. I mean, I guess what you could you could reason is that Pharaoh has had five chances uh so kids so there is no reason to expect that he would let the people go and not change his mind again right um uh so now the stakes are changing and the egyptians really do have to be broken or they're just going to keep keep coming back keep trying to re-enslave the hmm. israelites hmm. you know it's it's dangerous thinking because at one level, I think you can make the argument that 10 plagues and the, the largeness of this event, they've served as inspiration for billions of people for thousands of years, mm -hmm. right? And they've inspired freedom movements and uh, liberation movements across the world. Right. But this argument that you start making to yourself then in your own moment, in your own revolution, in your own freedom movement, to go big, to serve as an inspiration for the world and for the future, it's dangerous. Yeah, it might lead to the guillotine. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and yet, there's also truth to it, right? There's also power here. Yeah, uh, it's the kind of moment where you really need a, a level-headed leader. <laughs> um, and you need a people who are not fighting against themselves. You know, I think revolutions tend to go badly when different factions vie for power within the revolutionary movement itself. That's when the bloodshed starts in earnest. Um, so as long as we've got Moses and Aaron working together, the thing is going to go okay. Okay. Although, although I will point out that there is going to be quite a bit of bloodshed later on among the Israelites themselves. So it's not like this is free of those dynamics. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. So should we go on? Yeah, I think we're at verse 13. <clears throat> yep. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Adonai, the Lord of the Hebrews, let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time I will send all my plagues upon you yourself and upon your officials and upon your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. So just to pause here for a moment, right? Yeah. And I think that's the other read. Uh, if we're going to read this line. Let my people go so that they may worship me. I think we can read that through the lens of this David Hartman uh, essay we've been talking about, Auschwitz or Sinai. 
right? That the whole point of liberation is not to be free. It is to reach Sinai. Ah, right? freedom is not, or to say it differently, freedom is not the goal. It is the tool. Right. Right. And the goal is something else. The goal is this aspirational vision of the way a world should be. Right. That's well, what, and communion is. with God. <laughs> yeah. Coming into the presence of God is of deep importance. The other thing I paused over was um, that the plagues, God says the plagues are going to be sent upon you yourself. Uh, and then, and that's, that's a change too. Um, because in the previous five plagues, it's been possible to believe, although not explicitly stated, but, but heavily hinted out that Pharaoh is not actually experiencing the pain of the plagues. He keeps going back into his palace when there are frogs all around and everything, or the Mm. river is bloody. But here it looks like God is saying, okay, enough is enough. Uh, Now you're going to feel it. So I love that, first of all. But I think there's an interesting read then in terms of the first five being uh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart and the next five God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh That if the first five didn't directly affect Pharaoh's life. The point is that he hardened his own heart, not just to the suffering of the Jews, but to the suffering of his own people that he was bringing upon them. Right. And now it's about to impact him too. And once it begins to impact him, he's not given an out anymore. Right. So Pharaoh is a real jerk here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think that I think that should be clear from the start. Um the the one troubling thing about it I'd say is uh why wouldn't God just afflict Pharaoh to begin with? Why this hands off respect towards Pharaoh? Um I have no answer for that. So I think as as you know by now, um I tend to have somewhat humanistic reads here. Yeah. Uh, so if we look at this through that lens, uh, then I think what we're seeing is that inevitably the oppression that the leaders of a society bring upon the vulnerable minority, it's going to be felt by the everyday people Yeah. that inevitably it is those who are going along to get along who maybe aren't directly involved in the oppression, but are still beneficiaries of it, that eventually it's going to catch up with them. Well, this is of course the problem with sanctions and kind of the case for sanctions in some Uh, ways, you know, like we, we impose sanctions on a country knowing full well that the people who are going to feel the brunt of them are not the elites. Um, but with the hope that the sanctions will make the people angry enough with the elites that they move to overthrow them. Man, yeah, that's exactly what this is. These are sanctions. Yeah. And of course, yeah. just like sanctions, oftentimes the elite are able to uh, hold themselves up in their palaces. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Or, they, or eventually they give in, not because they're feeling the effects of the sanctions, but because they're afraid of being overthrown by their own people who are feeling those effects. Okay. I think we need to find a political scientist to bring on the show to talk about sanctions. Yeah, we do. That'd be awesome. Okay, should I continue? For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you have been cut off from the earth. 
But this is why I've let you live, to show you my power and to make my name resound through all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Tomorrow at this time I will cause the heaviest hail to fall that has ever fallen in Egypt, from the day it was founded until now. Okay, so there's actually a great midrash here, this sort of image that Moses is standing in Pharaoh's palace and he sort of... There would have been a, a, a place on the wall where they would have had a sundial or some sort of way of marking time. And then he draws a line right in the middle of it. And he says, the sun will hit here and the hail will start. <laughs> so that's uh, scene setting. That is scene our setting. Scene. Yeah, you're right. I'm not sure there's some great moral message there, but the uh, uh, direction for our movie interpretation. Right. Right. It would be beautiful. Um. This is okay. So this is a thing that always troubles me about the plagues in Exodus is that God explicitly says that these plagues are coming about uh, to exalt God's name, (laughs) to show God's power. And I don't know what to make of that, but I don't like it. So, uh, you know, I'm going to give you my slightly humanistic read here again. Um, If we think of the exaltation of God's name, as being the acknowledgement of the way that the world should be. But that's, that's sort of how we understand the idea and the distinction between God's name and God's godness Mm -hmm. that we, we can't hold God in our heads. We're not capable of it. God is inherently so capital O other that we don't even have a frame of reference. We don't have a frame of understanding uh, right. And that was sort of that idea when Moses asks God's name and God responds, share I'll be whatever you want me to be. Uh, right. The idea that God could have a name in that sense is sort of absurd. Yeah. And so God's name becomes what we hang our hat on. It's our image of God and of the way that God wants the world to be. So it's, in a way, this is uh, the Sinai vision. This is the Sinai vision, right? So instead, maybe we read this, that this is what happens to our world when we don't have that notion at the head of it. When we are lacking in true idealism, a true vision of what the world should be. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, that, we have know, that is the best. messed up. That is the best read of this I've ever heard. I really like that, Daniel. Thank you for that. <laughs> okay. I, well, that one, as far as I know, is my read. So I'll, I'll, I'll happily take that compliment. Okay. So going on from verse 18. Tomorrow at this time I will cause the heaviest fail to fall that has ever fallen in Egypt from the day it was found until now. Send, therefore, and have your livestock and everything that you have in the open field brought to a secure place. Every human or animal that is in the open field and is not brought under shelter will die when the hail comes down upon them. So those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried their slaves and livestock off to a secure place. Those who did not regard the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the open field. Okay. So, you know, going along with my previous read for a moment, you know, I think if we think of this, if we think of sort of global warming and climate change through this lens. I think there's an interesting read here, uh, right? The, the people who are, uh, acknowledging this, who are beginning to see reality and changing their ways are experiencing this differently than those who aren't. And yet everyone is in the end, collectively punished for the sins of 
whatever group is sinning. Yeah. Well, but not collectively punished because some people have a chance to, to escape it. And, and what I like here is, uh, we were talking about Pharaoh's court a few minutes ago and how they're egging Pharaoh on and Pharaoh was egging them on. But here is a move to actually break them apart. Mm. <laughs> and it seems like a very savvy, crafty move, you know, mm. like an understanding that part of what's going on here is Pharaoh has too much backing or, or feels a need to maintain his inner circle. And so we are going to make a plague that will uh, de facto destroy that inner circle, destroy its cohesion. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. Destroy the cohesion of the Egyptian people. Interesting. Yeah. Or at least the Egyptian power brokers. Um, interesting. Okay. So is this, is God the Russian interference in the Egyptian election? Is that sort of what we're seeing here? <laughs> oh, God. I- I hope I hope that is uh, that's not the analogy we saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now Adonai said to Moses, "Hold out your arm towards the sky, that hail may fall on all the land of Egypt, upon man and beast, and all the grasses of the field in the land of Egypt." So this is a good reminder that this is not this is not just a warning, and this is not just a punishment to those who refuse to listen. This is also something that does significant damage. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is going to have long-term agricultural costs. Even the people who go inside whose animals are saved and who they are saved are still going to deal with the famine that's going to emerge because of this. And it's a powerful thought to think that the whole reason that the Hebrews are in Egypt to begin with is because of famine and Joseph's foresight in Mm. that time of famine. And here comes famine again. Here comes famine uh, again. Because the Egyptians refuse to uh, huh. to let them go. Huh. And how adversity can bring people together, as in the story of Joseph. Mm-hmm. And how adversity can drive societies apart. Huh. Well, it's even more than that. I mean, the way the famine was used, the way that Joseph uses the famine is not... Uh, all that morally great, really, because he uses it uh, first to take people's money and then their land and then eventually their freedom. Maybe it's not him. Maybe it's Pharaoh. I can't remember from the end of Genesis who's who's involved in that action. Uh, but basically, famine is used to enslave people, mm. or and the surplus, rather, that Pharaoh is keeping, really, is used to enslave people. And so this is an exact inverse. This is famine use, being used to free people. Hmm. Hmm. You know, it's funny. That's always been my read of Joseph's actions. There's something deeply troubling, right? He's taking advantage yeah. of people in crisis. But I uh, uh, heard a read from the 1920s that looked at it aspirationally as Joseph trying to create a socialist utopia. Huh? Is that great? Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty great. Uh, except I don't think socialist utopias have pharaohs. Well, you know, (laughs) well, Joseph Stalin. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Right. Who created some famines of his own, I believe. Yeah. Well, you know, it's worth remembering the 1920s was still the moment where there was this dream that a communist society really could be a more equal society. Right. Um, And in particular, Jews of that era were very involved in the socialist movements uh, with the sense of having been the downtrodden and those who didn't have opportunity available to them. Yeah. 
Yeah. Actually, my grandfather got into all sorts of trouble because he registered as a communist when he was a kid because it was the local communists who had the basketball court in the neighborhood. And then later on, you know, you start getting into the 1960s and uh, his past registration as a communist in high school uh, did him no favors. Was this in St. Louis or was this somewhere else? Uh, He actually grew up in Detroit. Detroit. Grew up in Detroit. Huh. Okay, so we have, um, well, we have hail and famine without or with socialist collectives. With socialist collectives, (laughs) exactly. Um, But the Israelites are freed from it because they're in the land of Goshen. Um, And then moving on, uh, wait, is there anything we want to add to that? I don't want to move on too quickly. I don't think so, other than that this notion that the grasses of the field are destroyed. I think we're talking about grains here. Not uh, yeah, I agree. not the lawns. I agree. Okay, moving on, verse twenty-seven. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said to them, "This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord. Enough of God, thunder and hail. I will let you go. You need stay no longer." So one might suspect that Pharaoh too realizes that famine means an end to political power, just as it mm. meant the accumulation of political power. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your officials, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were ruined for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the spout were not ruined for they are late in coming up. Well, that's a very odd little thing there. Yeah, you know, that all about? and assumed that this was a metaphor and tried to, to peel it apart and figure out what applied to where. And then I realized that, no, this is actually a literal statement, uh, right? That this is a reflection that the wheat was still in seed in the ground, right? The wheat has so not, not been destroyed. So not total famine. Not total famine. Exactly. And so Pharaoh sees this. This is the first plague, I think, that really feels like it could be the total destruction of the civilization. Yeah, okay. So in other words, it's a little like, pity what happened to your flax and barley there. It'd be a shame if anything happened to your spout and wheat. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. (laughs) Okay, I get it. So there's a threat left hanging in the air. They're not totally destroyed because if they're totally destroyed, no threat would would matter to them. Yeah, okay. So Moses left Pharaoh, went out of the city, and stretched out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured down on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned once more and hardened his heart, he and his officials. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So Pharaoh is back to hardening his own heart. Pharaoh's back to hardening his own heart. Now, I've got a great midrash about this hail. Yeah. Yeah. Lay it on me. So the hailstones, which are on their way down when Moses stopped them. The rabbis asked this question, what happened to them? Right? Because we know, of course, that hail is not uh, uh, right all at once. It would have been some that was still in the air when Moses commanded them to stop. Right? So I, I think we could sort of imagine maybe that it just stopped and and those last few stones fell to the ground and that was it. Uh, yeah. But the rabbis don't like this. They like this idea instead that Moses stops the hail and at that instant it stops. 
And so all of these hailstones become suspended in the air. And what happens to them? In the days of Joshua, <laughs> when they're fighting the Amorites, they fall down and they destroy them there. This is uh, uh, Joshua ten eleven. if you want to look it up at home. It came to pass as they fled before uh, Israel that God cast down great stones from the heaven upon them. But even here, the rabbis say this is not it, that the remainder will descend in the days of Gog and Magog, that sort of in apocalyptic end, these are being reserved as uh, tools for the battle. Okay, so these these hailstones are always available as a weapon. And um, if they're used against the Amorites, it's because the Amorites in some way are reflecting Pharaoh or of, or Pharaoh's power or dominion. Mm-hmm. And they might be used against all powers and dominions in the end times. What, uh, what is the Jewish understanding of the end times? I didn't, I didn't realize there was Jewish apocalypticism. So, you know, it's interesting because of course, Christian or early Christian apocalyptic thought is Jewish apocalyptic thought. Ah, uh, right. And if you look back at the dead sea scrolls coming out of Qumran, uh, you know, date, let's call it somewhere roughly between 150 BCE to 100 CE or something like that. Uh, Some people would count them a little later, some a little earlier. Uh, But we find all sorts of end of times, apocalyptic images of these battles. We have stories of uh, that describe literally how many soldiers there's going to be and uh, what their flags are going to look like. It's sort of like if, uh, if you can imagine a war story told, uh, in the style of Leviticus is sort of how I would yeah. describe it. Um, yeah. So maybe not the most enthralling. A, a very dry war story. Yes. Yeah. It focuses a little more on the, the clothing and the marching orders than the uh, 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 battle. Uh-huh. Yep. Than the actual combat. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, so uh, uh, we have all of these images and these apocalyptic ideas, and certainly some of them remain in Judaism, but they're really mostly – have left. And this is my theory That's on what it. I, thought. I actually think that what has happened is they become so associated with Christian thought that even though they originally emerged out of Jewish thinking, that these ideas themselves become thought of as not Jewish. You know, mm-hmm. to, to give you another example, the book of Daniel is in the Tanakh, is in the Hebrew Bible. And yet it is never read as a part of any formal liturgy. Almost wow. every other book in the Bible shows up all sorts of times throughout the year, right? We read the scroll of uh, Ruth and we read the scroll of Esther at various holidays and not Daniel. And I really think it's because the apocalyptic imagery there starts to feel too Christian. That is so fascinating. Well, it makes sense. And and frankly, I wonder if that wasn't a very good choice, because I'm not sure that apocalypticism in Christianity has been a good thing. Um, you know, there are tons of splinter, uh, I don't know, denominations they eventually become, I suppose, but splinter groups of Christianity that start with an assumption that somebody can calculate or figure out the, the moment the world will end. And, uh, we just, we've had a kind of unfortunate focus on it, um, over time. 
And I think part of it is that kind of Sinai idealism, uh, but all placed in the hands of God so that human action doesn't matter at all in terms of it. Um, and, and it begs the question, if you have an ideal that you can't actually do anything to bring about, of what use is that ideal? Um, Because for me, idealism is active. Idealism is good because it makes us want to go and work towards that ideal. But if you put all of the action on the divinity and claim that you really can't do anything on your own, well, then you're screwed. What good is that? You know, you're never going to see it in your lifetime. So I come uh, 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 personally from a philosophical tradition. I mentioned it before uh, from Maimonides. Uh, yes. Philosopher for about a thousand you're, years you're ago. Your Rambam. As Rambam. You like the Rambam. Exactly. Uh, so the Rambam sort of looks at this, uh, the same idea, I think, and talks about it through the lens of Messianism. Uh-huh. And what he does is he looks at Messiah not as a predetermined chosenness, but as a title that is awarded to the person who accomplishes these things. Uh huh. And it radically redefines messianism. And I think uh, sort of end of the world theologies as well, that the Messiah is the person who has brought about a return to the proper order, to the way that the world should be and always should have been. Mm-hmm. The Messiah is not someone who is born as the Messiah. In that sense, who is preordained? Who is preordained? To, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. To say it differently: messianism or end of the world theology in general becomes an aspirational vision for a far off moment that we at right. best can make incremental progress towards. Right. Instead of it being the huge revolutionary moment that we can take part in, um, right? It becomes evolutionary rather than revolutionary. Well, how does that square with your cynicism about King's comment about the arc of history bending towards justice? So, right, I have become cynical about that idea um, that that history necessarily moves towards justice, towards a more just world. I mean, I really have come to believe that history bends basically in whatever direction we bend it. Uh, right to me, that's one of the lessons of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. that the greater technologies that we have do not make us more moral. They just make us more capable of morality and more capable of immorality. Right. We, we can power the world in in terms of quantity, (laughs) if nothing else, in terms of quantity, (laughs) uh, if nothing else, exactly. Um, and so the asp- messianism then becomes something aspirational. It becomes an image to point us towards. It becomes the direction that we are supposed to bend the ark. Uh, actually, it's the name of a wonderful Jewish social justice organization, Bend the Ark. Hmm. Cool. All right. So we we struggle towards it. We don't assume that it's just going to happen. Uh, because we're treating history like a far off god that can bring about. Um, the the eschaton, uh, but we we live and work in hope. I like it. I like it. Well, let's wrap let's wrap up for today, uh, and I will offer 
program note to say uh, that, Daniel, you're going to be gone next week, so we're actually putting two episodes in the can today. Uh, so when you hear me a week after you hear this one, I will still have the same scratchy, phlegmy voice. Uh, yeah, gosh, you, because you should see a doctor. It's been a week already. <laughs> exactly. I am not. I am not dying. We are simply uh, tinkering with time in your eardrums. Um, all, I, that all seems less concern, more concerning to me, actually. <laughs> it's not just that you're all dying; it's that we're actually tinkering with time here. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, all of which is to say that "Lost in the Wilderness: A Priest and a Rabbi Explore Exodus" is produced by Daniel Bogard and Carl Stevens, and is made possible by Christchurch Cathedral in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. "Lost in the Wilderness" is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, you can find me on my website, prayerbookart.com. Daniel, where p- can people find you? Uh, you can find me at nojokeproject.com, and that's actually why I will be gone all next week, is uh, we are going on tour for uh, uh, the documentary and show I was a part of. Which is awesome. Um, and also, I just want to... Um, give you kudos we've gotten some rapturous reviews about your parish visits uh to do adult forums on sunday mornings so i'm having a lot of fun so reminder to anyone listening i'd love to come out and see you all right okay well i will talk to you in a few moments but in listener time it will be seven long days (laughs) we've entered into einsteinian uh, relativity here it's a photo of Ty. The, 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 bend of, the arc of the universe is not bending towards justice. We are bending it. Yeah, we are bending it by folding time. All right. Talk to you soon. Talk to you later.